University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the book of James, chapter 2, verse 1. I believe history shapes us and reminds us of where we have come from and where we should never go again. Consider the place of my birth, Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham in the 1950s and 1960s was the wealthiest city in Alabama and the stronghold of segregation. The mayor was a segregationist, and the police commissioner, Eugene Bull Connor, was known for his hostile and violent treatment of black Americans. The governor of the state, George Wallace, had won on the promise of segregation forever. Between 1957 and 1962, in Birmingham, 17 black churches and homes were bombed, including the home of civil rights leader Fred Shuttlesworth. It was in Birmingham that Dr. King and the civil rights leaders turned their eye to make a statement that would change the movement forever. But Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference put into action what they believed was a wholly different approach to fighting for equal rights of all people than many of their contemporaries. Instead of white-hot hatred, this movement chose a higher form of love. Instead of violence, this movement chose peaceable, nonviolent approaches. King once said, an individual who breaks the law that conscience tells him is unjust and who is willing to accept the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the consciousness of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. The Civil Rights Movement is one of the most powerful efforts in human history, but it did not bring about change without a great cost. There was a lot of dark days. Even as the police broke out their fire hoses, their attack dogs, and their billy clubs, the Civil Rights Movement chose a peaceable resistance. Yet their drive to bring about equality for all people drove their movement forward. They knew why they did what they did. We are continuing in this series, Start With Why, a conversation of why we do what we do. We've examined the core values of UBC. We've touched down in what it means to be God-centered, what it means to look at the authority of the Bible. The next core value that comes into view is equality. This is a fascinating value for us to pursue because it's been at the heart of the church since the church conception in the first century. And whether we embrace it in these terms or not, the Jesus movement at its very beginning was some of the earliest forms of feminism and anti-classism and abolitionism. A particular example comes from the book of James. Now, we were in the book of James a couple of weeks ago when we looked at uh, where James calls people to not just be hearers of the word but doers of the word. And if you remember how he turns the text, he says, and religion that God our Father sees as faultless and pure as this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. And this carries over in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, 
you can stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Mark Twain is credited with saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. As much as things change, they really do stay the same, specifically, specifically on how we measure people for their worth. James pushes, James pushes the envelope even further with his readers by saying, you, you clearly are treating the rich better than you're treating the poor. Is this what it means to be unpolluted by the world, as he says in chapter 1? You would quite possibly be blind and, and deaf if we didn't notice that we live in a world of a system of measurements. Every single day, you and I are measured of our worth for our social and economic and political and relational worth. This is a dog-eat-dog world. And it's the weirdest thing that we, it grows within our nature, even from earliest of childhood. Psychologists have conducted studies that found the dynamics among adolescents of popularity. By the time children reach the age of 11, almost all of them are part of a friendship group, a clique, or they are viewed as outsiders. Every children tends to describe popular kids in their class as either attractive or athletic or wealthy or nice dressers or not boring. This propels into our life as adults, but certainly takes on different forms. Culturally speaking, uh, an individual is measured for their wealth based on well, the way they look, their job status, their, their work status, their talents, their economic status, and more. And what's fascinating is that psychologists, psychologically, we do this as we accept this within our own self-worth. We, we view ourselves as whether we are worth something to other people based on our identity measured by other people. Therefore, we give our time and our energy to know, to wear what is best, to own what is best, to exist within what seems to be popular and accepted within our world. And not only this, but we will also take form in, in, in the parts of crowds that we're willing to be a part of, either the, the higher than or the less than crowd, or we certainly don't want to be associated with the outcast. So we live in a world that measures us based on our sense of worth. And once you've measured someone, we then put a, a label on people. We love to put labels on people. We label people so that we can categorize them, so we can place them in a group, so that we don't have to deal with them, or we know they can be a part of us. So we label people based on their looks, their clothes, their political persuasion, their religious beliefs, their nationality, their perceived intelligence, their gender, their economic status, their sexuality, their worth to us, their choices for or against. We, we label people with all sorts of awful names, the likes of which I'm really embarrassed if I would say them from the pulpit. Labeling is just a form of socially accepting someone. It's an acceptable way that we judge or we discriminate or play favorites. And the church has never played that game of favorites. It's never been a part of our history. Okay, I'm saying that sarcastically. <laughs> It began with the Gentiles and then just steamrolled into the centuries that passed. We forget the time that the church waged war against other religions in the Holy Land, the promotion of the Roman Empire that resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Lest we not remember the Inquisition where people were forced to either conform to a popular belief or die. We really started to see why Martin Luther doesn't like the book of James because Martin Luther had to side with the rich 
and sentenced to death many within a peasant revolt. We hide our eyes from the hundreds of years that the church may or may not have given the thumbs up to the enslavement of millions of Africans in the European-American slave trade. And we can go ahead and throw in there the way that the church turned a blind eye during the Jim Crow laws of the South, blatant racism of its church members before, during, and after the civil rights movement. I wonder if we're honest with ourselves, how often we substitute the terms of rich and poor with another term. We have a tendency towards favoritism, towards exclusion, towards discrimination. You know, for for people who follow a Lord who brought the outcasts, the broken, the orphans, and the widows among him, we sure can create a lot of outcasts and orphans and widows. But what James says here in chapter 2 slams in the face of our system of labeling and measuring people for their worth to us. In fact, in the New Revised Standard Version, uh, James chapter 2, verse 1 is translated as a question. Do you, with acts of favoritism, really believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, James, you naughty, naughty boy. Are you trying to question the very faith of an individual who's willing to show favoritism towards one person or the other? That's what we see within our text. See, James parallels the teachings of Jesus more than any other New Testament letter. James has gone right at the heart of Jesus' message and ministry. The defining point, the barometer, the measuring stick of those who follow Jesus is whether or not we truly love our neighbor as ourselves. This is brilliant. And I would dare say it's pretty spot on with Jesus' teaching. Do you really believe in Christ and yet show favoritism towards other people? One of the reasons that I know I'm getting older, besides the fact that there's this battle waging between my skin and my hair of who's going to have the most landscape up top here, um, is that my vision is progressively getting worse and worse. And I went to the eye doctor a few weeks ago and went through all the tests. And and thank God they don't do that air puff in your eye anymore. All people wearing contacts and glasses are like, yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And there's this test where, you know, they they do it where they put this device in front of you and they flip a bunch of switches and every, you know, every doctor sounds the same. This one or this one, this one or this one. It's a series of questions. And everything that your vision is tested on comes down to reading a chart on a wall. And I'm realizing that if you have the slightest form of dyslexia, then you are up the creek without a paddle when it comes to your vision. So for guys, they need to not give us like letters and words. They need to give us shapes because it's much simpler for us. So they should do things on the walls like, do you see the duck? Do you see the cow? Do you see the football, the car? Before they give you an eye exam, they ask you to take your, your contacts out. So I pop my contacts out. And when we finished doing the, uh, the eye exam the, and they lifted that device up, the, the room immediately came blurry and I was plunged into a world where I couldn't see anything clearly, so much so that the doctor looked at me and said, just follow the blur of my body down the hallway. So we followed the doctor out of the exam room, down this long hallway, and everything was uncomfortably blurry until she sat me down into the fitting room and I put on a new pair of contacts, and just like that, everything came back into focus. What we need to understand about Jesus is that Jesus is in the business of not blurring our vision, but telling the blind that we are blind. 
giving us eyes to see the way that God created this world. With the kingdom of God, there is no social rankings and labels. In fact, Jesus' mission was to take labels and social status and throw them out to the poor. Remember his teachings. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the mourners, the hated, the humble, the merciful, the peacemakers. What Who shall be first shall be last. The greatest servant will be the greatest of all within the kingdom. Though she gave little, Jesus said, she gave so much. Remember when Jesus said, it is the tax collectors and the prostitutes that will enter the kingdom of God first. It was in a patriarchal society that Jesus chose women to be the first to preach the message of resurrection. He touched the lepers. He proclaimed that in the corruption and repentfulness of a tax collector, his prayers were heard over a self-righteous and boasting religious person. The great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright put it this way, God who sees and loves all alike wants the church to reflect God's generous, universal love and how it behaves. There is no social ranking in the kingdom of God. Jesus is in the business of not blurring our vision but telling the blind that we are blind by giving us eyes to see the way that God made this world. And James reminds his readers and he reminds us that it is through the lens that we see the world is through the lens of Christ. Instead of seeing us through the lens of our little kingdoms, our little political allegiance, our little economic allegiance, Jesus invites us to see the world and to see others through the lens of the kingdom of God. Therefore, the way that we engage people is a way that we should engage others with love and mercy. That's why Paul declares in both Colossians and in Galatians that in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no man or woman, slave or free, for all are one in Christ. It is through the lens of the kingdom of God that we view society and cultural issues in a different way. So it is through the lens of God the kingdom determines of how we see poverty, how we see unemployment, how we see sexuality and immigration and health care and equality for all people. It is through this waging and polarizing lens so often we get ourselves in trouble in our world but Christ invite us to level the playing field and see all people as children of God do we read this text and does this text immediately buck up into our social political and economic perspectives James goes on to write in verse 8 if you really keep the royal law found in scripture Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do not murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Before the GPS, before MapQuest.com, do you all remember MapQuest.com? Print out the directions before you go. Before the highway road signs, before road maps, how we charted points A to B was the stars in the sky. Celestial navigation reaches back as far as recorded history of the Egyptian empire. The navigation techniques uh, was primarily used and cultivated uh, for, for nautical trade. 
And there's this technique that, that led to the dominance and expansion of, of many great empires in history, the exploration of the new world, and importantly, the survivor of those who are seafarers. You see, your, your position was fixed within the ocean. You, you simply found the stars in the sky and navigated in this way. The stars served as an aid to those who were venturing across bodies of water for as long as history is recorded. Although the celestial map will, will differ based on a voyager's place within the water and season of the year, there is one particular star that serves as the primary constant guide for all nautical travelers. We know it as the northern star. And while the sky around it might move and alter, the northern star remains in place. It serves as a, as a marker of due north, providing natural compass for all seafarers. It's the brightest star in the sky. It's thereby given this fixed point of direction of hope and light to all people. You see, what James is pointing out to his audience is that this is the brightest point ahead. As James within this community is working among these unhealthy habits of showing favoritism and discriminating against other people, James wants to lift their eyes to the primary, never-changing focal point of their faith journey, the royal law of God. James brings them back to what Jesus told us is the most important thing, which is to love God and to love others. He uses the word here, basiliskos, which is a derivative of basileon, which is the word we use for kingdom of God. So this law that, king, that is about King Jesus, when you show favoritism, when you discriminate, when you break your king's law, he's writing. He's saying it simply comes down to this royal law of giving love for all people, expanding on this where he says, if you don't show people mercy, mercy won't be showed to you, reflecting the teachings of Jesus. So consider the way that you treat others. Are you living up to the royal law? Uh, Mick Madden had a problem. His goldfish, Malcolm and Ethel, lived trapped within the confines of their tiny little bowl and weren't seeing enough of the world, and so uh, Mick needed to create something to allow his fish to see the greater world around them. So at the age of 52, he built the goldfish walker. Um, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, do I need to take my fish for a walk? And although you probably wouldn't buy one of these, I think I would pay to watch somebody walk their fish around the corner. The goldfish walker joins inventions like the banana slicer. This glorious invention was created to make slicing bananas so much easier because oftentimes you find yourself with a rocket launcher or a samurai sword trying to figure out how to dice the banana up properly. Don't forget to buy your lipstick stencils, your diet water, your napkin chain, your VHS rewinder, and your pet rock as some of the other glorious inventions that for some reason we spend money on worthless stuff. You see, James is echoing the teachings of Christ. James is saying, if you don't love others, then your faith is worthless. Do you remember when Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13, if we serve and work hard and do great feats of faith, but we do not love others with a Jesus-like love, then it's worthless. Going on to write that love is patient and kind. It's not envious. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not dishonoring of others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It, 
it always protects, always hopes, always trusts, always perseveres because love never fails. Paul reminds us in this text we read for Anne's ordination a couple weeks ago, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourself, never be lacking in zeal, but always keep your spiritual spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. You think he's done? He's not. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people who are in low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. God is not calling us to have this philosophical concept of a Jesus-like love, but is calling us to treat other people with respect and decency and hope and grace and patience. Will D. Campbell is one of the most um, influential writers uh, of my life. His book, A Brother to a Dragonfly, was one of the most uh, formational books for me in my time of college. And this uh, prolific uh, author held um, even more prolific life. After serving in World War II, Campbell studied at Tulane and Wake Forest and Yale. And after a short stint as a pastor in Louisiana, he then became the director of uh, residence life at University of Mississippi but he was quickly fired after two years for his controversial views of race that they were attached to many death threats that came to his office. He then did a stint with the National Council of Churches, working alongside many of the popular civil rights leaders we know. In 1957, for example, Campbell was one of the four people who escorted nine black students into the integrated Little Rock High School. And he worked alongside Martin Luther King Jr., And all of a sudden, the hate mail started pouring in from the right. And as he matured, Campbell had an uneasy feeling for his hatred for what he said was those redneck bigots who hate the people that he loved. He discovered how easy it was to play favorites and to oppress the oppressor. Strange thought how he enjoyed thinking that God hated all the same people that he hated. And he realized that he had created God in his own image and after his own personal and political likeness. And so he wrote, I came to the understanding of the nature of tragedy. Who understood the nature of tragedy can never take sides. Campbell saw how he had played favorites and took sides. He subverted the indiscriminate love of God to all people without condition. And acting upon these convictions, he started sipping whiskey with the Ku Klux Klan. He did their funerals and their weddings. He even befriended the Grand Dragon of North Carolina, Bob Jones. When they were sick, he emptied their bedpans, and then the hate mail started coming from the left. In a 1976 interview, he said, It's been a long time since I got a hate letter from the right. Now they're just coming from the left. Let's break this down to size. So what? What does this mean for us as a faith community? Do we treat other people with a Jesus-like love? Or do we show favoritism and inequality? Do we treat guests who walk into our faith community with a Jesus-like love, or do we show favoritism and inequality? Are we an inclusive 
exclusive country club of members or a faith community centered on the openness of Christ Jesus for all people? Do we measure people by the content of their lives, their clothes, their skin color, their wallets, their sexuality, their marital status, their economic status? So what can we learn from James today? It's simply complex. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Equality matters more than social and religious constructs. James doesn't want us to question the salvation of one who's showing favoritism, who's discriminating, who's merciless. Instead, he's calling us to question the validity of our expression of how we've experienced God. How can we truly experience the God of overwhelming grace and mercy and unconditional acceptance and then turn around and be a people of judgment and unforgiveness and prejudice towards others? May we lean heavy on mercy and grace. May that triumph over judgment every time. May we see others, not with a label, but as beloved children of God.